as you would expect with it spanning over 300 years, the history of the Spanish Inquisition is full of unique stories. In fact, there were so many of these stories that were so entertaining, we have to do a little bit of an extra episode to be able to fit them all in. So this time, we're just going to look at random examples, interesting stories, and some of the unique faces of the Spanish Inquisition. First up is the story of the Jutas of Majorca, and they answer the question of how far would some go in order to retain their religion. Majorca is a small Spanish-held island in the Mediterranean Sea that today is known for its tourism. The name Jutas is believed to be derived from the word Jew in the local dialect. All the Jews of the island had converted in 1435 almost 60 years earlier than the era of forced conversions aided and abetted by the Spanish Inquisition. From the outside, the Jutas were undeniably Catholic. In fact, they went out of their way to work on the Sabbath, a violation of Jewish laws. In fact, the local dialect referred to doing one's own chores as, quote, doing Sabbath. They even turned their favorite traditional kosher chala breads into what is now known as ensamada, a dessert that bizarrely is made out of pork lard, making it decidedly non-kosher. For this, as well as their life on a remote island, they were easily overlooked by the Spanish Inquisition. The Jutas, however, had a secret, one that had become extremely dark over the years. For 200 years, they had consistently and successfully concealed the maintenance of their Jewish faith. In order to keep such a large secret, the Jewish families made a pact that included the families only marrying within the group. With only 15 Jewish families on the island, however, this meant that over the course of 200 years, there would be quite a bit of inbreeding that would occur. In fact, the Jews of Majorca today have an almost entirely homogeneous DNA. We are not exactly sure how their secret double life became known to the Spanish Inquisition, but the common anecdote involves Rafael Cortez, also known by the locals as Cap Loco, or Crazy Head. He had remarried after the death of his wife, this time to a Catholic woman. His family, furious at the betrayal of the inbreeding pact, censured him and threw him out of the family. His friends refused to speak to him, instead referring to him as the Renegade. In retaliation, Mr. Crazy Head went and denounced a number of them before the Inquisition. On the basis of this denouncement, the Spanish Inquisition sailed out to the shores of Mallorca, investigated, and made 150 arrests between 1688 and 1691. Of the 150 arrested, 37 of them were relaxed at an auto de fe. Today, there's a plaque marking the location of what locals refer to as the Bonfire of the Jews. After the Inquisition left, the double life of Mallorca's Jews continued. The inbreeding also continued at least into the 1970s, when after a 40-year battle, the Jutas were finally recognized as an official lost tribe of Judaism in 2011, and they could come out of their hiding. Although the Jewish faith officially welcomed them back into the fold, few Jutas have been accepting lessons at the nearest synagogue. 
In 2019, the Jewish Telegraph Agency, a newspaper in Jerusalem, did a spotlight story on the Jutas. One of the individuals they followed was Tony Pina, who grew up a teenager in the 1960s. Pina's classmates would taunt him with anti-Semitic tropes such as calling him Christ-killer. At the time, Pina's family had not let him in on the secret that so many of the island's inhabitants already knew, that the Jutas were Catholic in name only. Pina recalls asking his grandfather why the other children were calling him a Jew. Pina explains that it made more sense after his grandfather explained it to him. Gordon Hinckley, the former president of the Mormon Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, summed up the power of religion with the following quote, saying, There is no obstacle too great, no challenge too difficult, if we have faith. One group that we know had a whole lot of faith was the Spanish Inquisition, and they truly exemplified that there was no obstacle too great, not even death. The vast majority of those burned at the stake during the auto de fe's were not actually there. Lorente, whose numbers are extremely suspect, believed that 31,913 individuals were relaxed in person, and a little more than half that number, 17,659, were burnt symbolically in effigy. Sometimes this was done because the heretic had successfully managed to flee the country, but many others escaped punishment by the account that they had already died. Enrique Gomez presents one of the most interesting cases of the 300-year Inquisition history. He happened to be burnt by the Inquisition. Twice. Gomez's converso parents had both been tried by the Inquisition, and upon successfully emigrating to France, he converted to Judaism. An active writer, he was drawn to the land of his birth and savagely wrote against the practices of limpieza, blood purity, and the Inquisition, which he called the most barbarous seed sown by the devil in Christendom. Because of blood libel and limpieza, the best families have left the realm. It has created thousands of godless, it has injured neighborly love, and it has divided the people and perpetuated enmities. Words like that caught the attention of the Inquisition, who, while believing that he was in France and out of their jurisdiction, tried and burnt Gomez in effigy. Unbeknownst to them, Enrique was actually in the audience for his own auto de fe, having come to see what it was all about in April 1660. Unable to resist the lure of his homeland, he moved back full time. But the Inquisition caught on to his false identity and arrested him in September of 1661. There, while awaiting his trial, he died of a heart attack within the Inquisition cells in March of 1663. Four months later, they held another auto de fe in his honor, this time burning his decaying corpse. As disgusting as it sounds, it was common practice for the Inquisition to go to the grave and dig up offenders if they were denounced after their passage of this earth. To my knowledge, though, Enrique Gomez is the only person to have been burnt twice and never felt it either time.
I'm going to let Dan Carlin explain the next tidbit about the Spanish Inquisition. Dan Carlin runs a podcast series called Hardcore History. He calls himself an armchair historian, but he's significantly more than that. The interview that we're going to have is taken from his episode called Painfotainment, where he examines the concept of pain and torture as a form of entertainment during past eras. It's available for free from his website, dancarlin.com, and it's an excellent three hours of your time. First, I'm going to let Mr. Carlin explain his interest in this topic, which is unique. I'm very interested in pain. Not in a masochistic or a sadistic way. I'm interested in pain and suffering for much the same reason that, well, virtually all of you are. I mean, look at the entertainment you consume. Take out all of the physical and mental pain and suffering, and what do you have left? It's a source of art and always has been because it speaks to us on a human level. doesn't matter how many things are different with human beings through the ages and how much the culture changes us, how much the technology makes us different from our forebears. We can all understand pain. One of the things that Dan Carlin does is he puts this subject into perspective with the idea being that we can't judge these people based upon who we are today. We have to imagine what we would have been like if we had lived during their time. Once upon a time, not that long ago, human beings went to public executions where torture was a huge part of the event in order to watch and enjoy it. What the heck is that? Well, we never promise answers around here because there's no one qualified to give them. But the questions about what this might say about us, either today or back then, or in perpetuity, are pretty fascinating too. But as I said, not for the squeamish, and if you're one of the people who can't handle this, good for you. Some of us um, are still fascinated by this for reasons that I like to think are high-minded and educational interesting. I hope it's just not a historical, voyeuristic um, trip through time to do the equivalent of virtually sitting in the seat next to that spectator at the Roman Colosseum where he watches people devoured by lions. And one of the things I have to keep reminding myself is that if I were born in a different place, in a different time, if you took a baby, as I've always said, from now in a time machine back to this Roman era, for example, you or your kid might be sitting down next to the guy eating the equivalent of popcorn while you watched wild beasts devour people for your pleasure. Before we get to Dan's thoughts on public burnings, which were happening at the auto de fe, Here's his account of why other forms of death were also torture for the victims, including the straightforward chopping your head off. That uh, Joel Harrington in his book The Faithful Executioner recounts of a woman in Nuremberg convicted of infanticide. This is, as you will know already probably by listening to me, um, pretty pretty common charge in this era. I'm sure today we would uh, chalk a bunch of that up to postpartum depression uh, nonetheless, a lot of women going to their deaths in this era for killing their newborns. 
a woman named Margarita Vogelin in 1641, an extremely beautiful person of 19 years, she's described in the sources, was to be decapitated. She was sat in a chair. She was made ready by the executioner's assistants. You know, they'll make sure that the neck is exposed in the right area. And in this particular kind of execution by the sword, you swing it like a baseball bat more than you swing it like a chopping instrument. So you want a nice level swing. And you didn't always get one. According to one chronicle reprinted by Harrington, quote, This poor child was very ill and weak, so that she had to be carried and brought to the gallows or Ravenstone. And when she sat down on the chair, Meister Valentin, he's the executioner, by the way, circled around her like a calf around a manger, and with the sword struck a span of wood and a piece of skin as big as a coin from her head, knocking her under the chair. And since he hadn't hurt her body, and since she fell so bravely, the crowd asked that she be released. No such luck, though, Harrington says. And from underneath the chair, he says, the victim now wounded cried out, this 19-year-old girl, quote, Oh, help me for God's sake, which she said often and repeated. Then the executioner's assistant grabbed her and set her back on the chair, whereupon the executioner delivered a second blow, and this time hacked in the neck behind her head, at which she, however, fell from the chair, still alive, again shouting, "Ee, God have mercy! After this, the hangman hacked and cut at her head on the ground. End quote. In this next clip, Dan Carlin will explain an execution that happened in London with a woman. This would resemble very much an auto de fe and the experience that somebody would have with this type of execution that the Spanish Inquisition regularly employed. Nonetheless, what was it like to go through that burning experience? Well, that depends also. And there's a lot of famous ones. You know, Joan of Arc comes to mind, right? I read some accounts that talked about the likelihood that the smoke itself would render a person unconscious during the later period when they're still doing this into the 1700s in Britain, for example. They're doing the same version of secret strangling that they're doing in places like Prussia, but they're doing it openly, like in one of the particularly horrific Um, more recent burnings, they were executing a woman for killing her husband. They called that petty treason, by the way, back then. So major treason was like crimes against the state. Petty treason was a wife killing her husband. Nonetheless, they had the um, strangulation thing rigged up, if the woodcuttings I've seen are correct, sort of on a chain, and it was around her neck on the stake, and then somebody would hold this chain 12, 15 feet away, away from the faggots of wood that were burning and strangled them just before the flames reached them. But this time we were told that the chain got too hot and the guy whose job it was to strangle the the woman so she didn't have to suffer burning in this late enlightenment period, you know, where of course you wouldn't have a burning where you didn't strangle somebody. We're not inhuman. Uh, He had to let go of the chain and everything got very old-fashioned very quickly. The woman's name, by the way, was Catherine Hayes, who was burned alive in London in 1726. This account comes from Public Executions, the Nigel Cawthorn book, and he takes an account, sounds like a near primary source, but maybe not, from the Newgate calendar. Sounds like a newspaper, and it says, quote, 
Hayes received the sacrament and was dragged on a sledge to the place appointed for her execution. When the wretched woman had finished her devotions, in pursuance of her sentence, an iron chain was put around her waist, with which she was attached to the stake. When women were burned for petty treason, it was usual to strangle them by means of a rope, passed around the neck and pulled by the executioner, so that they were willfully insensible to the heat of the flames. But this woman literally burnt alive. The executioner let go of the rope too soon in consequence of having his hand burnt by the flames. The flames burned fiercely around her, and the spectators beheld Catherine Hayes pushing away the faggots while she rent the air with cries and lamentations. Other faggots were instantly piled on her, but she survived amidst the flames for a considerable time, and her body was not perfectly reduced to ashes until three hours later. End quote. When you hear it described like that, it's easy to see how the Spanish Inquisition decided to use a euphemism like the word relax to explain their burning at the stake. It is perfectly understandable if you do not think that anyone deserved the justice that the Spanish Inquisition brought. Occasionally, however, there is the story of someone who just seems to beg for their own relaxing. Take, for instance, the case of Ursula de la Croix a French nun living in the Spanish convent of Alcala. Instead of being denounced, Ursula self-confessed to having eaten meat on Fridays. The inquisitor in charge of her case absolved her and assigned her a tiny penance to complete, something like saying a few prayers. However, the next week she confessed to once again having eaten meat on Fridays. This time the penance, although small, was slightly larger, and she was put in pain for her crime. The next week, the third week in a row, Ursula once again appeared in the offices of the Inquisition, again confessing to having eaten meat on Friday. She begged to be given the stake, to which the Inquisition finally relented, relaxing the nun at an auto de fe just for herself in 1594. to another podcast for our next story, this time the Dark Histories podcast, looking specifically at their May 3rd issue on the Benedante, a story of the anti-witches and the Spanish Inquisition. I'll let Ben Cutmore set the stage for us. The story of the Benedante begins in the small village of Brazano with a local priest named Don Bartolomeo Sabriza. The priest had stumbled upon a local rumour that in the neighbouring village of Iasco, a man named Paolo Gasparuto had been able to cure a fellow villager who was thought to have been bewitched by a woman who was suspected as a witch due to her eating meat on a Friday. The rumours went even further when they claimed too that Paolo was gallivanting around at night in the company of witches and goblins. Naturally, this piqued the priest's interest 
and so he promptly called Paolo to his church in order for him to meet him and question him on the rumours. Sensing the danger of the religious authorities, Paolo was quick to deny their claims. He told the priest that whilst he had been helping a miller to cure his sick son, he had merely suggested an old folk belief that he could have been possessed by witches and had given the miller a protective charm to calm his fears. We've already discussed how the Inquisition didn't really believe in witchcraft, but Paolo in this story presents a challenge to the Inquisition. Because what happens when the suspect says it's real? Paolo had so far played his cards close to his chest, but then in an exposition of some flair, he went on to explain that he was certainly not a witch, as some had claimed. In fact, he regularly fought battles against the witches, both in order to protect the villagers and their crops. Furnishing the priest with more details, he then explained that the miller's young son had been on the brink of death when he was saved by a group known as the Benandanti. This group, he went on, on Thursdays, during the ember days of the year, they were forced to go with the witches to many places, such as Cormon, in front of the church at Iasco, and even into the countryside about Verona. They fought, played, leapt about and rode various animals, and did different things among themselves, and the women beat the men who were with them with sorghum stalks, while the men had only bunches of fennel. Concerned about what he had heard, Priest Sabriza journeyed to the city of Sivadale to consult with the local inquisitor on the 7th of April, 1575. Essentially, what we have here is a man saying that witches are real. He's seen them, and he's seen the group that has fought them. The Inquisition had to get involved. Paolo was investigated by the inquisitor, and to that inquisitor's face, with note-takers on, he explained a whole world where once a month witches and the Benedante fought for everybody's future, not only on top of broomsticks, but riding hares to battle in the middle of the night. And worse, if they lost, they turned into witches themselves. If the sleeping Benedante did not return to their bodies after 24 hours, Paolo told the miller that they would then become Maladonte, a peculiar inverse Benedante who ate children. Three times the story was told to the Inquisitors, each time growing more and more elaborate. Two days later, Paolo was once again back in front of Inquisitor de Montefalco to face his questioning. Once again, Paolo had decided to alter his story, giving it a much more Christian bent this time probably in the vain hope that if he had done so, the Inquisitor would drop the entire trial and allow him to get back to his life. This time he told the Inquisitor that he had been called to the Benedonti by a golden angel who had appeared before him at night whilst he had slept. The angel told him that he was called to fight for the crops. The mention of angels, however, appeared to have quite the opposite effect, as the Inquisitor seemed to believe that the angel was perhaps a trick of the devil and in fact a demonic being. He continued to question Paolo, asking him if he appeared on a throne and if he was offered food, women and dancing by the angel as a reward for their work. If you're interested in the story, I encourage you to go to the Dark Histories podcast website where you can listen to this episode for free. Shockingly, Paolo does not face major punishment from the Spanish Inquisition. Once again showing us on witchcraft in particular, the Spanish Inquisition was not nearly as bloodthirsty as their reputation suggests. 
they took a scientific investigation into Paolo's claims, and although they could not prove them in any way, shape, or form, they ultimately decided not to burn him at the stake, instead imagining something more towards illness rather than heresy. Monty Python's Flying Circus may have turned the Spanish Inquisition into a joke, but it's clear that the original Inquisition did not have much of a sense of humor. From about the mid-16th century onward, the Holy Office began to pursue old Christians who blasphemed, people who didn't know what sacraments were, people who said things that weren't in line with their way of thinking. The fact that Judaizers were becoming increasingly rare gave them a whole lot more time to deal with these problems. Many trials during this era considered what the Holy Office called unseemly talk, or palabras deshonesta, that is to say, blasphemy, and scandalous remarks, and poor jokes about the faith. Let's examine a couple of them. Like the case of Gonzales Riz, who said to his opponent during a game of cards, even with God as your partner, you won't win this game. Comment like that ran afoul of the Inquisition. Then there was Francisco Martinez Barella. He exclaimed that if you went to paradise, his own donkey would go there too, harness and all. For this, he found himself summoned to appear at the 1555 auto de fe in Toledo. A Frenchman, Petro Brars, aged 23, was arrested in 1640 in Madrid for bragging that God was not all that powerful as his own stick could prove, for God could not stop him from burning it, nor could he prevent it from having two ends. Six months later, poor Pabro received a serious warning. And finally, in the dubious jokes about the faith category, in 1582, a shepherd from Ronda was arrested. What was his crime? He told a friend the following story. One day Christ caught St. Peter making love with a female innkeeper. What are you doing there, he asked. To which St. Peter replied, I'm reproducing the species. Right, said Christ, but be quick about it. For that, he was executed. Chamber of Secrets examines the next concept for us, that of blood purity. In the second installment of the popular franchise, Lucius Malfoy utters the slur mudblood to Hermione Granger, our feminine hero. The insult hits at the fact that Hermione's parents are not purebred wizards. Instead, she comes from Mugglestock. This was an excellent way to introduce the concept and idea of racism to her audience of young adults. 
Virtually all forms of racism look to science and or accomplishments to argue that they are the superior race. Oftentimes, this comes down to a belief about the blood that flows through our veins. It is a wonderful way to introduce the subject of discrimination to so many individuals, although in 2020, author J.K. Rowling would find herself denounced by every young wizard that appears in the on-screen version of the story after she herself wrote discriminating comments regarding transgendered women. Many conversos became true Catholics in name and action. As would be expected of any group, many conversos rose to prominence in a number of powerful professions. This was most pronounced in fields that had previously been dominated by Jews and or Muslims. Jewish doctors who had been removed from their jobs could regain them upon attempting conversion. This pushed out the inferior doctors that had replaced them. Piero Sarmiento, a demagogue, exploited the discontent of the poor in Toledo in 1449. He ordered that all positions within the bureaucracy should be held by old Christians. He instituted the first statute on blood purity. The Catholic Church condemned this action and all actions that followed in Toledo. A blood test discriminated between Christians based upon the date of their baptism. Pope Nicholas V spoke out about it, explaining that regardless of the date that they became Christian, all of the faithful formed a single flock. All had an equal right to all posts and benefits of a society. It also flies in the face of the Christian idea that baptism can cleanse away any sin. Many Spanish private businesses adopted blood purity tests, as the notion was more sociological than religious. Blood purity acted as an extra filter against the increasing number of individuals who aspired to succeed in Spain. Viewing this in terms of a zero-sum threat, those that acted on blood purity did so to maintain their own privilege. The Spanish justified this through their interpretation of the concept of honor. A successful Spaniard was classified as a Hidalgo, but a rich man would not earn such a title if their wealth had been obtained through vulgar means. Don Quixote even discusses this idea when Sancho Panza states, quote, I am an old Christian and owe nothing to anybody. In the 1570s, the blood purity test shifted to the top six universities in Spain. From there, it became official policy for job applicants to the Inquisition and for the medieval military orders. At this point, the test was so common that it had to be granted a name. It became known as limpieza. Objections to limpieza were fierce, and the Inquisition initially attempted to criminalize speaking out against the practice. Anyone with known Jewish ancestors, or an ancestor who had a San Benito hanging in their honor, could not rise to certain stations within life, including to the Hidalgo status. It was opposition from the Dominican friars under noted theologian Augustin Solucio that led the fight against limpieza discrimination. Arguing that the criminal abuses that were being pursued in order to forge documents and bribe officials to avoid blood purity tests were provoking a secret war against the authority of the state. Channeling Abraham Lincoln 200 years before he was born, he said that it was impossible for the state to stand if it were divided into two fractions. While it stopped being accepted official policy, discrimination in the form of blood purity likely continued throughout the existence of the Spanish Inquisition.
and the life of Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius of Loyola is one of the most famous individuals within the modern history of the Catholic Church. Ignatius was a Spanish Basque Catholic priest who co-founded the religious order of the Jesuits, a group that swore direct loyalty to the Pope and served faithfully as his missionaries. As a youth, Ignatius joined the military and famously dueled multiple Muslim Moors over the honor of Catholicism. In 1521, however, a cannonball ricocheted and shattered his right leg. It would end his military career. He began his second profession reading a series of religious texts while recuperating from his injuries. Upon recovery, he went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and experienced a vision of the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus. He returned to Barcelona at the age of 33 and studied theology and Latin at the University of Alcala. Ignatius first ran afoul of the Inquisition after three women that practiced Illuminism were seen convulsing on the ground during one of his street sermons. Upon his graduation, he traveled to Paris to study for his master's degree. This happened to be at the time that John Calvin was forced to flee France on his way to create Calvinism in Switzerland. The foreign nature of his studies and the fact that Protestantism had crossed his path made the Inquisition extremely suspicious of Ignatius. When he returned to Spain at the age of 43, the Inquisition sought his arrest multiple times. The piece of evidence that endangered him the most was a boast that the priest said while dining with friends. Ignatius has claimed that he would consider it divine favor to be descended from the Jews, as it would mean that he would share the same blood as Mary and Jesus. Ignatius set up the Society of Jesus in ways that made it reject the radicalism that was common in Spain. He worked up to his death after a fight with malaria to limit the damage of discrimination against conversos. His immediate successor was Diego Linares, a converso himself. Ignatius won his fight with the Inquisition, resulting in a modification to the Constitution that ensured that conversos could participate. Tight-roping the acceptable line, Ignatius negotiated in 1593 that all conversos who had been Christian for five generations were allowed to become citizens of Spain. Considering that nearly all conversos in Spain had already been Christian for five generations, this meant the blood purity laws became irrelevant. The difficulty that the founder of the Jesuit order, an order of monks who dedicated themselves to following the direct orders of the Catholic Pope, shows that the Inquisition, while not all powerful, was extremely powerful in Spain. No one was above their suspicion. of the war between the Christians and the Moriscos of Granada, a religious and architectural discovery threatened to upend everything that the world knew about both Christianity and Spain. The discovery was deemed the Leaden Tablets of Granada, first found in 1588 and then followed up with additional tablet discoveries in 1595. The tablets painted a different picture of both Spain and Christian history. 
The books were dug up from the caves of Sacromonte, a hillside near Granada, the former center of Islamic Spain. The books comprised 22 volumes of inscribed circular lead leaves laced together with lead wire and bound with covers that included the supposed burned human remains of Cecilius of Elvira, a Christian supposedly martyred by Emperor Nero. The books tell a fascinating account of Christianity from the viewpoint of the Virgin Mary herself. Unfortunately, the tablets had already been translated from Latin to a version of Arabic that only Miguel de Luna and Alonso del Castillo, two Spanish moriscos, could read. Thankfully, those two men had been there at the discovery of the books. According to their personal translations, which the Inquisitors could not understand as they refused to learn Arabic, the Blessed Virgin Mary had St. Peter give instructions for St. James and St. Cecilius to convert Spain. In the teachings, Mary expresses her love for the Arabic's people and their language, and she promised to eternally watch over their city, the city of Granada. The tablets present a form of Christianity that celebrates Arabic culture, while emphasizing parts of Catholicism that Islam tolerated, such as the veneration of relics, the cult of the Virgin, and the priority of Granada. The tablets also, however, downplayed the Christian beliefs that were the most offensive to Muslims, such as their cult of icons, the doctrine of the Trinity, the inclusion of wine as part of religious ceremonies, and of course the worship of Jesus as the Messiah. The discovery of the tablets sent shockwaves throughout the Spanish Christian communities. The discovery of the books promised to let Moriscos adopt Catholicism to something much more tolerant of their cultural and religious beliefs. Unfortunately for the people of Granada, much like the discovery of tablets by Joseph Smith, the leaden tablets of Granada were met with a lot of skepticism. In 1682, more than 80 years after their discovery, Pope Innocent XI pronounced the tablets to be fake. The fraud had in fact been perpetrated by the only two individuals who could translate the tablets. I know, you are absolutely stunned by this turn of events. Despite the obvious contradictions that the tablets taught, the Vatican went through a thorough investigation, first sending it to the Netherlands, and then in 1642 succeeding in getting the lead books sent to Rome. The tablets had their effect, however, as some Spanish scholars continued to maintain the authenticity of the tablets all the way through the 19th century. from Disney's Ratatouille wisely squeaked. How can I describe it? Good food is like music you can taste, color you can smell. There is excellence all around you. You need only to be aware to stop and savor it. Remy understood the power of a recipe, using Gustav's old recipes to create the finest eating establishment in all of fake cartoon Paris. Food is passed down from generation to generation, 
Before the age of the internet, one of the most sacred acts was passing down family recipes to keep their memories alive through the food that the family celebrates with. Jewish families upon conversion had to adopt not only the religious beliefs of Catholicism, but also their cultural traditions. As we have seen throughout this unit, however, the formerly Jewish conversos did not want to completely divorce themselves from their culture. One of the key pieces of evidence used to try conversos of Judaizing were old Jewish recipes that the Inquisitors would find hidden throughout Spanish kitchens. Thanks to the Inquisition's excellence regarding record-keeping, these recipes, which were used as evidence during trials, were cataloged and still remain today. In fact, there are a number of cookbooks that specialize in telling the story of the persons behind some of Spain's most interesting foods. Jeannie Milgram's 2019 book, Recipes of My Fifteen Grandmothers, Unique Recipes and Stories from the Times of the Crypto-Jews During the Spanish Inquisition, came from a successful operation of evading the Inquisition for 15 generations. While a drizzle of honey, the lives and recipes of Spain's secret Jews comes directly from the files of the Inquisition. What emerges from these recipes is a savory blending that combines Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions of cooking lamb, beef, fish, eggplants, chickpeas, and greens with seasonings such as saffron, mace, ginger, and cinnamon to really give you a taste of true Sephardic culture and cuisine. As wonderful as these recipes are, it would be amiss to not remind you that dinner choices during the time of the Inquisition was literally a matter of life and death. In 1635, Pedro Genesta, an 80-year-old Frenchman, was brought before the tribunal in Barcelona for having eaten a meal of bacon and onions on a holy day of abstinence. Bueno, sí.